UPR Special Features Reporting is made possible by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement, providing global learning opportunities at the Study Abroad Fair, Wednesday, September 25th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the USU Taggart Student Center. Details at studyabroad.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're going to be looking at uh, some cases before Brown versus Board of Education, cases that many of us don't know about. Quoting from uh, Wikipedia here, Sylvia Mendez grew up during a time when most southern and southwestern schools were segregated. In the case of California, Hispanics were not allowed to attend schools that were designated for whites only. They were sent to so-called Mexican schools. Uh, Mendez was denied enrollment to a whites-only school. That event prompted her parents and others to take action. They filed a lawsuit in federal court. And the success of their action, in that case, Mendez versus Westminster, um, was a principal uh, catalyst uh, toward uh, segregation or desegregation of schools in uh, California. Sylvia Mendez eventually was awarded the Presidential Medal of uh, Freedom, United States' highest civilian honor. Well, Sylvia Mendez, who was a child during those times, played a key uh, part in, in that case. And uh, she now travels the country uh, telling about this uh, case and uh, urging uh, continued momentum in these cases. And she was on the USU campus uh, last week uh, giving a talk, and I had a chance to uh, talk with her. We'll have that conversation. We also talked with Crescencio Lopez, who is Associate Professor of Latinx Studies, and uh, he talked with us as well. Later in this hour, we're going to be talking with uh, Professor uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola, uh, who has a, a book, hopefully will be published, it's under review. Uh, it's called The Bricks Before Brown versus Board of Education, a comparative historical study of race, class, and gender in Chinese-American, Native American, and Mexican-American uh, school desegregation uh, cases. Some history that many of us don't know. So let's begin with my conversation recorded last week with uh, Sylvia Mendes. Thanks for listening to Access Utah, and uh, this uh, part of the program, we're uh, very honored uh, to be joined by uh, Sylvia Mendez, who is a uh, civil rights activist and uh, is in the case, the, the not as famous as it should be case, Mendez versus Westminster, uh, which came before Brown versus Board of Education and was uh, uh, very important in the march toward uh, civil rights and, and integration. And uh, Sylvia, Sylvia Mendez at this point is on the USU campus, uh, just having uh, given a presentation. Uh, Sylvia Mendez, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Have a beautiful campus. Yeah, it's it is. Gorgeous. It is beautiful. We appreciate you coming. Um, Crescencio Lopez uh, joins us as well. You're an assistant professor? Uh, associate professor. Associate professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what is your field? Uh, I teach Latin studies at uh, in the Department of Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Studies. Okay. You're instrumental in uh, bringing uh, Mrs. Mendez yes. to the campus. Um, the idea came when my daughter, Natalia Lopez, about two years ago, she did a documentary on Brown versus the Board of Education. And as she was doing some research, she came up with, uh, and she started looking at the case of, of uh, Mendez versus Westminster. And as we started talking, I decided to search on Facebook, and I found um, 
Miss Mendes on, 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 on Facebook. I friended her, and I noticed that she was traveling around the country doing uh, talks and talking about the case. And it came to me the idea of bringing her to Utah State uh, to give us, us Latinos, more visibility and to also celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month here on campus and and have the students become more aware of our, our story and who we are. And that's what Mendes is doing here. She's um, helping us recognize our stories of struggle, our stories of um, perseverance, and and as we see we see ourselves in her story but we also embrace the story and, and we celebrate it and, and and we move forward with her um leadership that she's been doing so that's that's pretty much the, the idea behind of bringing Silvia Mendez to to campus all right uh so Silvia Mendez um I confess I was not aware of Mendez no. uh, versus Westminster uh, what happened was this case was fought in 1945, won in 1947. And the integration of schools in California, which was the first state to be integrated, seven years before the rest of the nation was integrated, uh, California was integrated by our governor, Earl Warren, at that time. Uh, people are not aware of it. Maybe I'm always thinking, why didn't they know about this case? Well, what happened was uh, the case was fought and everybody just started integrating. The school started going, you know, and it was no no big deal at the time because there was no news and the integration went so smoothly. Nothing like what happened in the South, mm. you know, when the nine students were trying to get into Century High. Nothing like what happened to Ruby Bridges. California just started accepting the children to the white schools, and it went very smoothly. I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, in an integrated uh, school system. And, yeah. And so maybe if something would have happened, you know. Uh, would have got more fame. More, right? more yeah. fame or, right. or yeah. be noticed. And and so it was, wasn't even uh, a big deal at the time. Let's, uh, let's uh, have you tell your story. It's a fascinating story. So uh, at the time... Uh, so 1945, you would have been about eight years old? I was there? eight years old when I was take, taken by my Aunt Sally to, to a white school there. We had just moved into Westminster. And my Aunt Sally took Gonzalo and Geronimo and myself uh, to the school with her two children. Her two children are very light-skinned with almost blue eyes. They had really light eyes. And so when we got to the school, they told my aunt uh, to just say that her children were Belgium and they would accept them, but that at that school they were not accepting Latino, Mexican mm. children. Yeah. So they were not going to take us. And I always say that my aunt made a Rosa Parks then and says, I'm not taking leave my <laughs> children here if you won't allow uh, my brother's kids here. And she goes home and she takes takes us home and tells my father what's happened. And he can't believe it because he was raised in that city. And we had just gotten there. And he had gone to that school because he was so intelligent. They had taken him out of the Mexican school and placed him in that white school. Mm. So he couldn't believe that his children were being denied. So he went and spoke to his principal. And the principal said, I'm sorry, Mr. Mendez, but we're not accepting um, Mexicans here anymore. And uh, he couldn't accept that. He went to the superintendent of schools. Then that's where he found out that certain cities in Orange County, California, had uh, separate schools for minorities. And and 
Westminster was one of them. And that was nothing he could, the superintendent could do because the city had decided on that. So um, if I thought it was such an injustice, and he, they had written, uh, a friend of his wrote, read uh, the Los Angeles Times that stated that a case had been won by this uh, lawyer called David Marcus where uh, Latinos were not allowed to go into public parks in Riverside, and he had won that case. Hmm. And so they decided to hire that lawyer, Marcus, and he's the one that came in and influenced my father to make it a class action suit mm -hmm. for all the children, not just for us. Yeah. Now, this is a pretty, pretty first of all, tell, tell us about the differences between the schools. Oh, the schools. Oh, the school in Westminster was the worst of all the minority schools. It was right next to um, a dairy, a dairy farm. And at that time, the dairy, the dairy was allowed to have a wire around the, around the dairy to keep the cows from move, moving out of the area, but they had a little bit of electricity, so the cows would get shocked, and so they wouldn't get near it. And that was a fence between the school and the dairy. Oh, boy. And one day, one, one young girl, because I had to go to that school uh, while they were fighting the case, uh, one of the girls throws a baseball a ball and it's rolling down the down and it comes closer as she's running towards it, trying to get a hold hold of the she grabs a hold of the fence. The fence has enough electricity uh, that if you grab a hold of the wire, you can't let go of it. Mm. But so the, there was a student stuck on the fence, and our teacher had to go all the way around and tell the the dairyman, please please turn off the electricity on that fence. So that was one thing that was so horrible. The other thing, I was eight years old, so the, other, the thing that I, I disliked most was that we didn't have a playground. We didn't have swings and teeter-totters and, and, and a playground. It was all dirt there. And uh, where we had to eat was outside, and then, you know, all the flies from uh, the far from the dairy would come over and... Uh, we didn't have a right, proper place to eat, and the books were all being handed down from the other school. The, the furniture also had been handed down, and we were being taught econo economic. Uh, we were being taught vocational, vocational. Uh, it was more like a vocational school. We were not being taught academics at that time because mm. they figured the Latinos at that time were not going to go on to, to high school or college, and they were, would end up working in the fields or. And so, or and the the girls were going to end up being maids, you know. So we were being taught how to cook, how to crochet, you know, in kindergarten, in the first grade. Wow! <laughs> Instead of being taught, you know, the the things to read and write and and things like that. Yeah, that, that early. Um, so we skip ahead to so the segregated schools and definitely not equal. No. Um, and so. Um, what your father does is is pretty courageous, pretty admirable. That's right, he, he, he doesn't he doesn't just complain about it. He yes, because he had a, gone to that school and he had heard about the he had learned about the Fourteenth Amendments and about civil rights in school, so he knew he was right, you know. And so when he he uh, he goes uh, and hires a lawyer, and they start fighting. And the the hardest part for him to do was trying to convince the families. The Latino families to join him because they were so uh, 
happy that the school was right there inside the barrio, and and they didn't have to go all the way, you know, and miles to go into a white school. And it was right there. And they said, Gonzalo, why are you fighting this? The school's right there. It's so easy for them. So he had to, you know, show them that they were not, the students were not being taught the same things. And it was, it was not fair. It was so unequal. Hmm. And understand one of the one of the arguments that the that the uh, defendants used was uh, these Hispanic kids. There's a language barrier; they don't there, speak English. That's true, and there was a, the language barrier was true with some of the students, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Like Gonzalo, my dad, you know, had taught us English, so we knew how to speak English. Mm-hmm. So when we went to court and they used that example, we proved that that was not right because yeah. not all the students. Just like today, we have students in in our schools that don't speak uh, English. Yeah. I understand as this went along, um, Thurgood Marshall, who famously would would be on the Supreme Court later, uh, he contributed. He was one of the lawyers on the case. Yes, we first sent in by by different uh, organizations, and he, he was the president, I think, of the NACP at the time. Yeah. And so I uh, understand that some of the same arguments he l- used later in Brown versus Board of Education, he used in this case. Yes, he used everything from Mendes to fight Brown. He asked Marcus to send everything, and Marcus sent boxes and boxes because for the first time uh, in a law case, they, they had used anthropologists and psychologists and doctors to prove that we're all equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess one of the central arguments was separate cannot be equal. Right. That was the central. That yeah. separate cannot be yeah. equal. So this went up, uh, up through the up through the courts. Right? Well, what happened was when we won in the Superior Court in Los Angeles, they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and that's the nine judges are in the separate Circuit Court of Appeal, and they confirmed the decision in 1947. So since 1947, California was has been integrated, and and to to this day, people aren't aware that it was the first state to be integrated. Yeah. So the so you, eventually the, the the you won the case, right? We won the case, um, and I guess it could have gone the way it did in the South with a lot of resistance. Yes, but, uh, and here's where another key figure comes in, Earl Warren, right? Yes, He's the governor. Uh-huh. And our governor at that time uh, had integrated California, and who would think it's so ironic that he becomes the Supreme Court cut justice right. listening to the same case that Thurgood Marshall is uh, presenting. Uh, separate is not equal. And so we say that um, when he uh, finally, you know, integrates all over the United States, that he used almost the same wording that he used when he integrated uh, California. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's just amazing. Uh, and so in part because of a governor that's uh, that's the determined to implement the court ruling, right? And and I get I don't know what are the other factors? Do you think that why California integrated without the the the, the fight that some of the southern states? I have a slight idea. Yeah. Why why it went so peacefully? Yeah. It, it, it we just integrated. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, after this case is won, you're able to go with your siblings too. To the, white school. The white school. Mm-hmm. But, but it, the story doesn't end there, right? There's still some problems. And Westminster, uh, what happened during the first court trial in, in Los Angeles, where Judge McCormick was the first person to say that separate is not equal, uh, the Westminster School went ahead and integrated at that time. They weren't aware that the su- superintendents were going to appeal it. So Westminster, we, we we were integrated, and we started going to, to those schools. But 
Santa Ana, one of the other districts, had said, one of the other cities said, we're not going to integrate just because Superior Court Judge McCormick is saying separate is not equal. So that's when they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court. So we, we moved to Santana during this this time. So when we got to Santa Ana from Westminster, where I had been in the white school, because they had gone ahead and integrated us, when we got there, uh, my father told the superintendent, well, I'm taking my children to the white school across town because we lived in the barrio. And when I got there, I remember the teachers were aware that I was coming, and it was there that uh, all this time I had been in court every day, not really knowing what they were fighting for. I was eight years old, thinking they were fighting for me to go to that beautiful school with that beautiful playground. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got there, uh, the teacher was really nice and said, uh, hi, Sylvia. Say hi to everybody. I said, hi. Everybody said hi. It was until the school bell rang and this little white boy came in and started uh, harassing me and says, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? Don't you know Mexicans aren't going, aren't, aren't supposed to be here? And I start crying and crying. And, and he says, well, don't you know it? And so I go home and I tell my mother, Mother, they don't want me in that school. She says, Sylvia, don't you know what we were fighting for? Yes, to get to that beautiful school with a playground. She says, no, Sylvia, that's not what we were fighting. Because under God, we're all equal and we all deserve equal education. And that's what we were fighting for, mm. for all the children to have equal education. By the way, I, I didn't realize that you're eight years old and at least some days you're in court. Right? You're, you're I was in court every you're, day. Yeah, you're uh -huh. in court every day. Uh -huh. yeah. I didn't testify. I thought I had testified, and I, I made the mistake of telling a, a reporter that I had, but I, I didn't. Because uh, Marcus would put me on the stand before the trial every day and ask me questions. He was propping me, you know, just in yeah. case they did. And they didn't. They didn't ask me. They asked uh, uh, older Latina girls. Okay. Uh, 13 or 15-year-old yeah. Connie Torres to speak instead. Yeah, but you were in court. Your, I was in court every day, but I was court. just yep. never listening to everything right. that was going. I was <laughs> next to my brother Gonzalo and Jeronimo, you know, and we were just like talking and stuff like that. Why did your parents want you in court? They wanted you to witness this? Well, they, thought they were going to ask me to testify. Oh, oh, in case. In yeah, case. then yeah. a lawyer mm -hmm. wanted me in court. Yeah. yeah. Wanted the whole children, the three children in case, in case, you know, the, one of the other... Uh, Lawyers wanted to show that we didn't speak English, and since we did, our lawyer wanted to make sure we were there to prove that we spoke English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so eight years old, of course, you're you know you're going to be kind of bored and, and yeah. such. Um, yeah. So I wonder, you know, later years, did you, I'm, I'm sure you reflected back on on how this changed your life. Probably. Well, I knew it all my life. All my life, it influenced me to you know to seek. A, college education, become a registered nurse. I work, worked as a registered nurse, become assistant nursing director, which I resigned, which I retired very young to take care of my mother when she was very sick uh, with needed hospice care. And that's when she would say, Celia, we fought this case so long ago and nobody knows about it. Mm -hmm. That was before 1998. And somebody who has to go out and start talking about it. And, and I says, well, it's not gonna be me, mom. <laughs> I'm a nurse. I know how to give shots. And she says, well, somebody has to do it. And she just kept on. Somebody has to tell the story. Yeah. And and uh, you can do it, Sylvia. You can do it. And and so what I did, I sent letters to all the schools and said, I'm Sylvia Mendes, daughter of Felicitas and Gonzalo Mendes. I'll come and tell you a story that you never heard. And it's history of California. And I'll never forget Garden Grove High School. It was a, a class nine, nine grade, nine, nine-year-old, uh, ninth grade 
it was ninth grade, right, in the ninth grade, students in the ninth grade that, that the teacher invited me to go and speak. And they were the reason I'm here today because I was so scared. I was, I can't, I am so scared. I have to tell you the story. It's history. I have to tell it to you. <laughs> and then the one said, Miss Mendes, just tell us the story. <laughs> I said, okay, you have to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And they did. They, they, they wrote a little piece of paper. They told me, and before I left, I said, do you want me to continue? And they said, yes. And that's why I'm here today speaking. Um, and, and so uh, this is very important to you, and you've you've been now several years. Uh, several years, tw- over twenty years. And yesterday, uh, when, when I spoke in front of the class, in front in the auditorium, uh, the students have never heard about it, mm-hmm. never know that California was the first state to be integrated. Yeah, and I think that's history. Right. Important. Obviously, you think it's important to be known, right? Better known. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's. Uh, I imagine it's very pleasing to you that uh, the, the, there's now been a school named after your parents, right? Yes. Um, a, a school named for you, and, and yeah, and you've received uh, the highest civilian honor, Medal of Freedom. Yes. Uh, yeah. and, and that that helps. Uh huh. That helps to keep me going. That yeah. helps me to to know that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Um. What, oh, oh, just one other fact here mm-hmm. that's, that's just so interesting. Mm-hmm. Your family, at, at least around this time, was running a farm uh, that had been owned by a Japanese-American family. What right? happened was that my father uh, had grown up. Uh, he went to the fifth grade, learned about the Constitution, learned about the 14th Amendment, and my grandma took him out of school and made him go work in the fields. He hated that. He hated it. He wanted to go to school, but he had to work in the fields to support my grandmother, and then he stayed on working in the fields and married my mother, and they, they bought a cantina. Uh, they bought a, a restaurant in, in uh, Santana, and they were making a lot of money. But then when somebody came and told him that he could be this a farmer and at the same time take care of a farm for the Japanese family, the Minamitsos, that were being placed in an internment camp, he decided he'd go and uh, take care of the ranch for them, and he leased it. I remember going to post in Arizona with my dad where he signed papers that he would lease the land from them so we would pay him while they were there, and, t- and he would take care of the ranch yeah. for them. That's how we ended up uh, uh, knowing the Minamitsos family. Yeah. Did, did the family, was the family able to come back? The family came back. After the war ended, and they and it was before uh, the appeal decision, and what happened was so wonderful uh, that my father had used all the money he had received from selling the cafe, all the money he would receive from from the crop, fourteen acres of asparagus, and and the packing house, trying to convince people to join him during that whole year that they were trying to get people to join him and paying for the people to go to court because they didn't have money to go to court and they didn't want to miss a day of work and and so he he ended up with not enough money to move back to to uh, Santana and the Minoviso family allowed us to live with him mm. and stay there and they gave us the last crop that was uh, asparagus, the money from the last crop of asparagus and tomato, so we could have sufficient money to go back, and he bought another cafe in California. Oh, in Santana. In Santana. So yeah. to this yeah. day, the Mino Mezzo family are my friends to this day. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, just at the, at the end here, running out of time, um, <laughs> such an interesting story. Uh, I just wanted anything else you'd like to say about your 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 parents Gonzalo and Felicitas? They're extraordinary I, I, people. So yes, like. they were to stand up against the establishment at a time. And the only thing that happened during that time that my father uh, was so upset about that they were calling him a communist. Uh, 
and and because he he was not a communist, <laughs> he was just a, a a business Latino man, you know, that was trying to do a good thing by taking care of the Minuto families farm while they were in Germany, and that's that he he felt so bad that they that everybody was saying, well, he's a communist, and that's why he did this, you know. Yeah, and your father. Um didn't really live to see the full effects of this, did he, or, or did he? Well, he, uh, he the, knew the that case? he went to see the full effect of the integration, he went to see the full effect of me going to college and uh, and my my sister going to college. But he would never, nobody ever said thank you to him after that. Mm. And it was before I started talking about the case and nobody knew about the case. Yeah, he, he didn't even know that a school was going to be named after him. Right. He did not see that. My mother did, but not my father. Yeah, and it was your mother who encouraged you to be a She's voice. She's the one right? that yeah. encouraged me to be a voice yeah. when yeah. I thought I couldn't do it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, let me turn back to in the end of the program here to Crescencio Lopez. Yes. Um, so you were saying that many, including this Hispanic community, don't know about the Mendez versus Westminster. What does that mean to to have this more well known? Well, I, my students too. My, student, yeah. my students in my class um, are learning right now about the walkouts in the 1960s. And we also study um, segregation. It's an introduction to Latino studies. So we um, do a, a review of um, the experience of Latinos in the educational system. And of course, we come across um, Brown versus Board of Education. And, but um, not Mendes, uh, the Mendes case. In, in bringing um, Sylvia Mendes to, to Utah and, and having the students uh, connect with real history, it, it really um, emphasizes uh, the importance of um, our story and our experience in the educational system. I feel uh, that many of the times in, in, in the educational system has been a border wall, another border wall that we have to cross. And, and having our community here um, in, in Catch Valley to, to see um, her story of overcoming uh, adversity and breaking barriers, um, it encourages us too to um, uh, cross that, you know, cross that border wall, which is the educational system, um, not just here in 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 Cash Valley, but uh, in many parts of the country, which has become um, segregated in terms of uh, economic white flight and um, de facto segregation, which she also talks about in her speech last night and explain clearly how uh, many urban cities across the country have become seg segregated um, depending on how much money they make, and, and that's, that's pretty much my uh, answer to your question. Oh, excellent. Yeah, mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, um, uh, Sylvia Mendez, uh, any, anything else you'd like to, to say here? At, no, at the I'm end? just so grateful that Utah invited me. Yeah, wonderful. Well, it's a real pleasure to, to meet you, Sylvia Mendez. Thank you. Um, and uh, thanks so much, uh, Crescencio well, Lopez. Most definitely. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. And, and we most definitely want to be visible uh, and not uh, be segregated and 
the outskirts of the of the city, but we want to be part of the uh, to be part of the history of this country. We we are already part of the history, yeah. but we want to make it um, center, center yeah. the center part. Yes. We'll have more. We'll talk more about uh, these issues uh, in the second half of the program uh, coming up. We've been talking with Sylvia Mendez, uh, who is was part of the uh, Mendez uh, versus Westminster case of uh, 1945-47. Um, very important uh, case in, in California and in civil rights history. And uh, she's now a civil rights activist and uh, Professor Crescencio Lopez, associate professor at Utah State University. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll head north on the next Putumayo World Music Hour and visit the largest French-speaking region outside of France itself, Quebec. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Quebec, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, for sponsoring our news programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Next time on Living on Earth, all is not lost. There are some practical solutions to reverse climate change. Also, how a family tried a flock of guinea fowl to get rid of the ticks that cause Lyme disease. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from Public Radio International. Wednesday morning at 10, here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We now uh, make a transition to a conversation uh, live in studio now uh, with Maricela Martinez-Cola, who's Assistant Professor of Sociology at Utah State University. And uh, your your dissertation, which is you're now uh, shopping as a book, so mm-hmm. fingers crossed that yes. this gets picked up, <laughs> is titled The Bricks Before Brown versus Board of Education, a Comparative Historical Study of Race, Class, and Gender in Chinese American, Native American, and Mexican American School Desegregation Cases, 1885 to 1947. Uh, Mendez uh, versus Westminster is one of the cases you treat in, in this book. So we wanted to... Yes. Uh, put this in some further context. Um, uh, so I'll ask you, um, now having listened to, to Sylvia Mendez, I wonder what your thoughts are and why Mendez is not as well known. It, it's, I think we ha- I, I had the impression that um, Brown versus, versus Board of Education was sort of sui generis. It was, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Exactly. Of course, it was very, very important. Very much so, absolutely. Um, but but uh, we don't know about Mendes. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's one of the things that um, unfortunately kind of happened with the Mendez case is that it became uh, mischaracterized. Uh, a lot of people believed that the Mendez case was making an argument for whiteness that, you know, uh, because Mexican-Americans at the time were classified as white under the census. And so people thought they were saying, we're white, therefore we should go to the school. And that's not at all what it was based on. Uh, The attorney, David Marcus, was brilliant to think, I can't argue race because, you know, white people can't discriminate against white people, but um, I can can, uh, argue dissent, that they're being discriminated against based on Mexican descent. and so because it wasn't a, a straight-up race-based case, the NAACP didn't use it as precedence. They didn't cite it. Um, it's in one of their briefs, but not in the actual arguments. 
Um, and so I think it, it really sort of ended up kind of getting relegated to a footnote in history. Mm-hmm. Why do you think uh, desegregation went comparatively uh, smoother Yes, in, yeah. in California than it did in the South? Absolutely. Well, I, what, what had been happening is they had sort of been integrating uh, throughout history, you know, um, Mexicans in this particular time. Uh, so, for example, in the school, there were already black students, Filipino students and Japanese students in the Westminster School. The only ones that were excluded were Mexicans. Um, and so that kind of gives an indication that there was sort of already sort of steady integration happening um, throughout history. So it wasn't as much. It wasn't as stark um, as it was in the in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, another factor here that, that I learned from from this case and this discussion, uh, of course, looking back, you you know we can see you know uh, separate is not equal, right? Mm, yes. That was the argument: separate but equal, uh, because the resources just weren't there for mm-hmm. for the non-white schools. But another very important factor is there were different expectations, right? And and yes. so s- the setting these children on a, a totally different life trajectory. Absolutely. Um, it was, it's really uh, fascinating to sort of see the kinds of uh, jobs that uh, public school systems thought um, these, you know, Mexicans would be sort of fit for. Um, and so there was already kind of a vocational, uh, at that particular time, there were so many things going on. There were pretty uh, significant events. You had the um, Sleepy Lagoon murder trial of 1942, um, which ended in the conviction of 12 young Mexican-American men. And you also had the Zoot Suit riots at the time. And uh, the Zoot Suits uh, were used a lot of fabric. And so uh, at a time when the country was rationing, they thought it was unpatriotic. And so a group of sailors came into um, Los Angeles uh, and beat up uh, about, um, well, several young, not just Mexican men, but Filipino um, and black men at the time. And so what it ended up happening is was this idea that there was this criminality that was running rampant in the Mexican community. And um, the the answer for it was, well, let's just give them trades and jobs because they obviously don't have anything to do, but, you know, um, walk around in suits, suits and be criminals, I guess, you know. And so that's really what sort of the trajectory that many people have. And, and to be honest, there's lots of kids today who are still told, um, why don't you go and be a mechanic or you'd be better at, you know, this with your hands um, rather than go and be an attorney or go and be an accountant. Uh, so it was really um, at that particular time, there's a, a wonderful historian that wrote an article that said that they were legally white, but socially Mexican mm-hmm. and uh, experienced a form of what other scholars call Jose Crow, which is a Mexican form of Jim Crow. Yeah. Uh, so the, the they did they did have these laws in California and other areas. Jose Crow. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things mm-hmm. is that it was socially that way, mm-hmm. um, but oh, it socially. wasn't it okay. wasn't legally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. didn't have any mm-hmm. legal. They didn't have any laws on the books that actually did it. But it was on it was at a at a social level. There was no Mexicans allowed, um, and so yeah. Uh, so we're talking on this part of the program with Maricela Martinez-Cola. She's assistant professor of sociology at Utah State University and author of the hopefully forthcoming book, uh, The Bricks Before Brown v. Board of Education, A Comparative Historical Study of Race, Class, and Gender in Chinese-American, Native-American, and Mexican school-American school desegregation cases. We talked early in the program with Sylvia Mendez, uh, who's a key figure in Mendez versus Westminster, uh, a key case in 19. 19- 46 that helped desegregate schools in in 
in California. Uh, so you have an event coming up today. Yes, I will be at the Museum of Anthropology in Old Main 252, uh, where I'll be giving a, a more extensive uh, talk on the case and take questions uh, that people may have. So I, it's there's a part of me that feels like I have I have a part to play as well in making sure the Mendez story gets out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell me about uh, y- you look in this uh, book uh, in into Chinese American and Native American. Yeah, this is cases. actually um, this book really covers sort of the beginning of segregated schooling and the end of segregated schooling. Uh, the beginning starts with a case uh, that's Tate versus Hurley in 1885, and it involves Chinese American a Chinese American family uh, that wanted to go to a to the uh, white school, of course, closest to their home. And the narrative is so similar. Um, the father goes and takes the child. Uh, the child gets brutally rebuffed by racist administrators. Um, they come back home, kind of regroup. Um, most of the parents in these cases that I was looking at, well, all of them are fairly middle class. So they have the resources to bring a lawsuit. Um, and so they brought a lawsuit against the case. And they actually, the Tape family actually won uh, the opportunity um, and to go to um, the white public school. But it wasn't because it was the right thing to do. The judge basically said the way that the law is written right now, you have to accept them. But, and then did kind of a wink, wink. If you go to the legislature and tell them that you'd like to have separate schools, then you can send her to a separate school. And so that's pretty much what happened. They delayed the case as much as possible and opened up a school for six Chinese American children. Mm. Um, and that is sort of how the story of, of, of a lot of the, the segregated schooling of other racial groups really began to happen. Interesting. Um, and, and so that continued for some time. Absolutely. Um, they, it went on from there. The next sort of case to challenge it was uh, the uh, Piper v. Big Pine, and that was in 1924. That involved a Native American plaintiff, a young Paiute girl. Um, in uh, Big Pine, California, and she argued, uh, again, same story. They go to the administrators. She gets, um, and it's always the father. I, I, you know, in my one of the chapters, I talk about fighting fathers, missing mother, mothers, and pretty little plaintiffs, and the, the fathers are always featured very prominently in all these stories, um, but she went there. The difference with that case, um, with the Piper case, is that it didn't make a 14th Amendment argument completely. They won the case based on the Dawes Act, um, that said that they had, quote-unquote, adopted civilized habits um, and as a result were considered citizens and should be able to go mm. to the school. So they each sort of won their cases but on very different um, terms than what ultimately happened in Brown. Yeah. So the Dawes Act, uh, adopting civilized habits. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that civilized is defined by the, the ruling class, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and part of it was that they had to show that they owned land off the reservation, that they basically cut ties um, with their um, indigenous communities. Um, and they don't exactly describe what civilized habits mean. There's no, you know, I've been trying to look it up. Um, but I think what the big part of it was being able to say, uh, they're not connected to that community anymore, which is really interesting because um, in that part of the book, I talk about what the papers say, and the papers give that story, meaning the opinion and the news coverage at the time. But when you talk to the people and you see the subsequent history, they never cut ties with the community. They were very much attached to it, and so it was almost kind of a ruse in order to win the case. Mm-hmm. They knew they had to make that argument. 
So uh, the, the, the fathers, mm-hmm. right? And then the what? The pretty pretty little. How would you phrase that? Yeah. The fighting fathers, missing mothers. And pretty little plaintiffs. Pretty little pr- plaintiffs. <laughs> That's important, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you polish up the little girls, you because yeah. how can you how can you rule against a pretty little girl, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, it's re- really interesting that the lead plaintiffs from Tape to Brown were all little girls when there were younger boys available. So if you were trying to go for youth, you would have used the young <clears throat> the young boys for the case. Um, but anti message there were so many. So much uh, miscegenation fear, so much mixed race into relation, you know, relationships. There was that fear was so heavy. This is what I contend that um, <clears throat> that they would rather use little girls. Little girls need to be rescued, right? They, and it, when you look at images of them throughout the, you know, when you look at how they're described in the newspapers, um, there was one instance when even Mamie Tape, the Chinese American plaintiff, was asked to play the piano for. Um, a visiting reporter, and he said she played it as good as any American girl. <laughs> um, and what's really interesting is that Mamie played piano. There's a picture of Sylvia Mendez, a very famous picture of her sitting in front of a piano, and I found out when she visited here that that was very intentional, that particular photograph. And then uh, for Grins and Giggles, I just happened to look up, and Linda Brown wanted to teach piano. Um, and so I think that's really interesting that you have sort of these little girls that were set up a particular way that kind of sit in between the criminalized stereotypes and sort of the more kind of poor and pathetic stereotypes. They were too middle class to be that, but they were also too young to be sexualized or criminalized. Mm. So they fit this great little middling spot that I think made them very um, good plaintiffs. So I want to pull out a little more broadly than the school desegregation uh, cases and, and talk about the, the context of the times. Um, what were the fears of the, of the majority community? Because it, it, the, a lot of this comes from fear. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, definitely. Um, as I said before, the, the images that were very popular at the time, um, in fact, what I call them is a, the mamacita imagery, which was a very highly sexualized imagery. Um, there's a, an actress, Lupe Velez, um, and um, Dolores del Rio, who were very popular uh, Mexican-American actresses or Mexican actresses at the time. Um, and they were able to make it over from silent films into talkies because they could speak English. So you had that image going on with the Zoot Suit riots. And you know, uh, in the LA Times, there was lots of sort of reports of a lot of the crimes. Uh, committed by young Mexican or Mexican-American men. And so that really sort of painted at the time, uh, painted an image at the time. And back then, they, they very much said, um, the children are dirty, uh, they, they have lice, um, <clears throat> and, it, and they're mentally inferior. They kept using that phrase throughout the entire trial, that they were mentally inferior, and that in some way they're inferior, you know, that they would sort of infect the 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 children. So it was not just about fear um, of the of the individuals, but it was also for them about protecting this community they've created. Um, and so that's really how it was set up. It's really remarkable to to read the transcripts and hear these administrators talk about um, Mexican children as if they were objects rather than people. Um, I'd like to have you tackle miscegenation head on. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, th- this is a kind of a constant that, that runs through. 
in the South. Yes. You know, for sure. But in places like California as well? Absolutely. Um, that's There's a really wonderful book called What Comes Naturally, written by historian Peggy Pasco. And she did such a great job of talking about uh, anti-miscegenation laws around the country. Um, and so, you know, it, during the, the tape case, uh, Chinese and uh, Chinese men and white women weren't allowed to um, be together uh, with the Native American cases. It's really interesting because there's a lot of race mixing um, with that particular group. And with Mexican-American, again, even though that they were classified as white, um, there was still a, 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 there was a particular case where there was a woman that was trying to uh, marry, um, a, a Mexican woman was trying to marry a black man. And uh, they ended up going to court uh, to win the right but the reason why it was fought is because she was classified as white under the census. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting, the dynamics of miscegenation, because it, would, it was okay for men to, you know, to race mix, but it wasn't for white men to race mix, but white women were sort of the ones that were protected more than anything else. You look at those cases, and that's the ones that go through a lot of the time. So this is especially interesting uh, in California because Hispanics are are classified white. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But uh, but there's a lot of race concerns. Definitely, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about um, in in uh, my uh, manuscript is the idea that even to this day, people don't know where to place uh, Latinos or Latinx folks on the racial spectrum. They have no idea where to put them. Um, just in the in the Mendez case. They referred to them as uh, children of Mexican descent, Spanish-speaking versus English-speaking, Mexican children versus American children, Anglo-Saxon descent versus Mexican lineage. Um, and they just could not come up with how to classify them at the very beginning. What are we going to call them? Um, and it still happens very much to this day because, um, as uh, Sylvia Mendez very clearly kind of states, even within her own family, she had cousins with light skin and light eyes. And her family um, and her, her mother said that they were iguale prieto que yo, which is as dark as I am. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as dark yeah. as I am. Um, th those those uh, cousins mm -hmm. would have been accepted. They were accepted, right, in, mm -hmm. the, yeah. in the school, in the white school. Yeah, that the administrator said we can take them, but we won't take those. Yeah. Um, and and try to and actually that was another thing they tried to do. They tried to have. Uh, they tried to tell some of the um, people that were in the case, just say that you're Spanish and you'll get accepted. And they were like, no, we're not Spanish, we're Mexican, which is further proof that they weren't trying to claim whiteness. They were very, they were, they made this more of a citizenship case. Mm -hmm. We're citizens and deserve to be treated with the same respect and dignity as anybody else in this country. So, uh, you know, we see these issues being played out uh, today where, uh, you know, race mm -hmm. and citizenship and yes. culture all intersect mm -hmm. and it, it can become a quite a, a heated, uh, you know, cross point. Absolutely. You know, I think that um, one of the things that's really interesting is that in, in the cases, American is all always synonymous with white. So when they say American, they're not talking about just as in the country, we're all Americans. They're talking about white Americans very specifically. Um, and so throughout history, this notion of what an American is um, really starts to get built up um, and developed um, and, it, you know, constructed, really, um, not just in, in, 
in uh, real in that just sort of in people's minds, but then in reality by having these you know Jose Crow kind of systems and Jim Crow systems in place that make it clear that there's a difference. Hmm. So race can get very tricky, mm-hmm. right? And and you know in the South you have definitions of you know so many drops of blood uh, you know uh, and that sort of thing and then there's appearances which can be very tricky um maybe talk a little bit about how this intersects with culture because that's that's an argument you hear today mm-hmm. is um concern about preserving culture yeah absolutely there uh, one of the big sort of arguments is the idea of that why haven't mexicans assimilated in the same way that, let's say, Irish, um, German, and Italian uh, immigrants did when they sort of first came in. And this is where, again, like you said, it gets complicated because it's not just about culture. It is about race and skin tone and appearance. And there are Latinos who can pass for white, can and have throughout history, um, have done that. Uh, but what's really remarkable is Latinos have, have been very reticent to uh, let go of their culture. Um, and I think a big part of it has to do with um, the very thing that's causing the uh, segregated schooling, residential segregation, you end up getting these ethnic enclaves that live together and still maintain uh, the culture and language. Um, and so you end up kind of getting three groups of people, you know, ones that completely assimilate, um, meaning that they you know, no longer speak Spanish, they no longer carry on traditions, and they very much sort of <clears throat> slide away from that. Then you've got this kind of middling group um, Chicanos is what kind of what we call them. Um, and I, I, I refer to myself as a Chicana. And that's really a group that kind of has a foot in both cultures. And it's this blend where you don't speak Spanish, you speak Spanglish, for example, you know. Um, and there's this connection to sort of old history, but then you're also creating a new history here in the United States. Um, and then you have those that are here that have yet to learn um, English um, and uh but yet they live around so many other people that they, in a sense, don't have to. My grandmother never spoke, never learned English. She didn't have to because she was surrounded by people who spoke Spanish to her. Um, I was her translator. And had I not had my grandmother, I would have lost my ability to speak Spanish because when I spoke it in kindergarten, um, the teacher hit me with a ruler. And so my parents didn't want me to be held back in school, so they stopped speaking Spanish to me. So it's that kind of those sort of dynamics that end up happening um, where you have you make decisions along the way. Um, and I think a lot of people would like it if, um, you know, people didn't hold on to this sticky culture thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's that culture that makes America what it is, that that defines who we are. I mean, our, this world is a better world because. Uh, we hang on and cling to our culture. So the uh, we just have a couple minutes left, sure. but but sort of the the, the classic uh, conception of the historical march of America is that waves of immigrants come in, they get assimilated, the melting pot, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you think that'll eventually happen in that way with with Hispanic uh, immigrants, or do you think we're going to be looking at something new? Yeah, well, it, it is very definitely very population-driven. Um, so uh, as an example, Cuban-Americans are considered probably one of the most assimilated um, groups. Uh, and I don't mean individually, but I mean sort of collectively. Um, and then you also have, you know, Puerto Ricans who are American citizens. And, I mean, you've got so many different 
you know, uh, groups together. But I think some of the larger groups, they've, there's been three generations. There's people that have done generations on uh, studies on three generations, and those cultures are still intact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's always hard to predict the future. So I guess we'll, yeah, we'll find out. Right? Absolutely. Uh, just one minute uh, left. What uh, what do you think the value is in learning about Mendez and some of these other cases? What what do we gain? That's a, a wonderful question. I I believe that whenever you can learn about others, you really learn about yourself. Um, and you really begin to add a dimension to your knowledge that you just didn't have before. I mean, it's boring to just know one thing and one thing only. Uh, but when you get a richer, sort of more inclusive history, uh, it gets a, a more beautiful picture um, of what what's happening. So tell us again uh, your event today. Yes, um, I'll be at the uh, Museum of Anthropology in Old Main, 252, uh, to discuss the uh, Westminster case. Uh, Dr. Molly Cannon was nice enough to bring an exhibit. She brought a beautiful exhibit uh, there. And so I encourage you to please come and, and learn uh, even more about Mendez, where you're ultimately learning really more about yourself. We uh, have been talking with uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola. She is assistant professor of sociology at Utah State University and author of the book, which is under review, uh, The Bricks Before Brown versus Board of Education, a comparative historical study of race, class, and gender in Chinese-American, Native-American, Mexican-American school desegregation cases, 1885-1947. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Crescencio Lopez, who's associate professor of Latinx studies at USU, and with... Uh, pioneer in one of these cases, Sylvia Mendez, who is uh, was instrumental uh, at age eight uh, in the Mendez versus Westminster case. Our thanks to all of them, and uh, thanks to you for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news, and information statewide through 36 signals worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app. UPR is only a push of the button away.